0: Welcome to the SDG Talks Podcast, where we discuss all things around the Sustainable Development Goals and the Roadmap to 2030.
1: We are your co-hosts, James and Kevin, here to take you along the SDG ride. We hope you enjoyed today's SDG Talks Podcast. Energy is the foundation for, for most human rights. You know, How do we ensure that there is access and just access to those communities? And is it subsidizing those transition products that take people from kerosene lantern to eventually being on, hopefully, a renewable energy grid. So, are there state subsidies for for the types of products that Pollinate distributes? Are there state subsidies for things like LPG?
0: Luke Barbagallo leads partnerships and programs at Pollinate Group. Paulinet Group empowers women as leaders of change to distribute household products such as solar lights and cooking appliances that improve health, save time, and save money for the world's most neglected communities such as in India and Nepal. Luke participated in Unleashed 2019 under SDG 13 Climate Action and is an active participant towards social, economic, and environmental sustainability. He believes that strong community engagement and agency is the key to successful and sustainable communities, and he is passionate about connecting local change makers with government and private businesses in order to facilitate long-term and meaningful change in our communities around the world. Luke, give us some context about what are the challenges around access to energy?
1: Yeah, so that's a really interesting question, Kevin, especially in the context in which I'm working currently with Pollinate Group in India and Nepal. And so the customers that, you know, our organization works with day to day, you know, the people that you kind of say are the most vulnerable um, when it comes to energy access. They are living in informal urban settlements, so, you know, commonly called slums, and those settlements will not have any access to sanitation, are very unlikely to have any access to grid electricity. And often if they do have that access to grid electricity, it is through semi-legal or illegal means. And then also in Nepal, we're working in a lot of remote and rural villages where there may be access, but it could be intermittent or it could be quite expensive. So, I guess in terms of what are the, the challenges, it really does depend on you know who um, you know which population we're talking about, and you know as I said for for the populations that Pollinate Group is currently working with, the main challenges that we face and, and the customers are facing is is that the land tenure, they are often living in you know situations where. They're deemed illegal residents on, on that land or in that city. Um, so they're not afforded the access to utilities that other urban residents potentially are afforded. And even then, you know, when grids are rolled out and they are you know brought into those urban areas where there are slums or they are taken out to the remote and rural areas, there's often a, a very large price barrier and that's because there isn't the kind of the economic power in those communities that they have jobs that you know will allow them to afford you know the grid connections and you know that kind of goes into the that other added problem, as as you know, low and middle income countries are developing their grids. It's a really costly exercise, and at the end of those grids is you know, often quite costly to build modern power generation, um, whether that's new solar or, or wind or, or hydro, or whether it's you know kind of more clean coal burning plants. And so there's it's a multitude of layers that you know affect energy access. But I guess returning back to the conditions that pollinate is engaging with every day, you know, our customers are the, the poorest of the poor earning, you know, often about $1.90 US dollar a day. And so they don't have the ability to afford, you know, more traditional form of good energy, you know, even if it was available to them. And so, you know, the, there's price, there's, um, you know, the strength of the, of the grid, there's like infrastructure, Access, so will you know those power lines actually hit their homes, and then there's also you know the last thing is I think the the intermittent power, and that is something that we're definitely seeing across India and Nepal, is that you know a village or you know a small town can be connected to the grid, but they may not be getting you know a 24-hour power supply um, as we've come to expect in in you know wealthier countries, and so yeah, it's it's a really big meaty problem and one that's really exciting to be. You know, working across
0: yeah and I mean it was a super open-ended question and obviously all these problems are very contextual to the local geography that that we're talking about but as you speak about the work you're doing with pollinate and within India what are some of these specific solutions that that can be done I mean you, you mentioned some of these decentralized power options but can are, is there investment that's going into some of these different Is it more of a larger grid investment focus, or are we looking at more of a decentralized grid focus? Or what do you see as maybe some of the path forward for some of these areas that are struggling to have access to consistent 24-7, 365 power?
1: Yeah, look, I think that question is you know, the one that everyone is grappling with everywhere, Um, like even in Australia where I live currently, in one of our states, Western Australia, the state-owned power company is in the process of actually winding back their grid and creating a decentralized network in some of the very, very remote parts of the state. And, you know, they're also looking at replacing diesel gen in really remote towns with solar and and wind arrays. So that, that conversation around decentralization is one that's happening everywhere, not just in um, low- and and middle-income countries. In India specifically, it's a really interesting space because, you know, it raises these, you know, additional questions of access and, you know, around the is it a human right to have energy? Um, And if so, is it something that the state should provide or is it something that, you know, we should be relying on, your private businesses or corporations to provide? And, And then how does, you know, the... The affordability question come into it and so there are companies like like pollinate but we operate kind of in the ultra ultra off-grid kind of sector of power and and that's because we're providing you know small solar lights which have a you know five and a half watt solar panel and that light is independent from the grid it's got a a lifespan of five to seven years it can light the type of homes that we're encountering which are you know generally about you know, 15 square meters housing four to five people. A single solar lantern can work very effectively in that space. But then there's like different kind of stratas of poverty and and energy poverty across India, and and therefore like there are different you know, stratas of solutions. There are companies like uh, OMC, and they create. I think they're up to like a couple of hundred now solar arrays that's powering small villages um, that have kind of two to 300 homes. And so, you know, there's a challenge and an opportunity here. The the rate of the, the government electrification of those villages to that 24, 365 kind of point has been patchy. And, they, you know, the Indian government's done some great work. They've also done some work, which has been a bit kind of lagging. And so, those private operators are stepping in and, and filling that decentralisation void by going to villages, building the array, hooking the whole village up, and then being the the sole provider. And that those kinds of assets are in private hands is you know the next kind of thing that we, needs to be examined in terms of, of access. You know, in Australia, and you know, I know this is a case in a number of other wealthy countries. Community owned power assets are, are very much um, you know, what the, a lot of rural and, and regional areas are, are trying to achieve. And, and just north of where I live in Melbourne, there is a community energy project where they've got, currently I think they've got one large wind turbine and are looking to get a second and the community also owns a number of, you know, solar panels. And and so, that model of, you know, public-private partnerships or, you know, solely community-owned energy when coupled with decentralization is, you know, a really great way to start examining the whole issue of energy access. But, you know, going back to kind of the original question around what are some of the challenges, um, I think the challenges, are, especially in a, in a country like India, and certainly to Nepal um, to a great extent, is that you've got so many different communities that have really unique needs. Although there are similarities in those needs, each community and each village and each kind of urban informal settlement have slightly different needs. And so they really need to be consulted and centered in those solutions when it comes to, to energy access and especially um, decentralization.
0: Interesting. And, and one thing I know within all aspects of these SDGs that there's there's no, these are complicated problems, but sometimes it's simple solutions that actually can solve these problems. But even though the problem or the solution may seem simple, there might be some greater force at B that is preventing the actual solution from being implemented. And I know with an energy, there might be some of these smaller, just simple solar panels and lights that could be used. Um, but there, there is the need for some of these larger solar panel arrays and some of these decentralized banks and whatnot. And, and I'm, I'm kind of interested in the whole dynamic of different incentives or subsidies that are offered that can incentivize or disincentivize companies, whether it's private or public, to actually contribute more resources to enable access to energy for those that currently do not have it.
1: Yeah, so subsidies, I think, is a really interesting topic, in especially with regards to renewable energy, because, again, I only draw on the Australian example because I'm not fully up to date with the current level of subsidies in the Indian market, but in Australia, you know, the subsidies that are provided to the, the fossil fuel industry, whether that be mining of, you know, more minerals or, or coal or the coal generation plants far far outstrips the amount of subsidy that is provided to the renewable sector. And and that is kind of it goes against the logic of, you know, we really need to accelerate this transition towards renewable energy. And I think when it comes to, you know, the the debate around transition and coal power and, you know, India is one of the, the largest consumers of coal, in the world, if not the largest, it might be, you know, almost neck and neck with China. An argument that is often put forward is that the only way you can, you know, fully uplift, you know, the, those people that are living in poverty or experiencing energy poverty in India is to have a, you know, large national stable baseload grid. And coal currently is is put forward as the only solution to that. And therefore, it attracts, you know, the most amount of subsidies. And so, I think there really does need to be a, a, a massive examination of that, that question of baseload power and, you know, are we subsidising or are we you know, investing money into the research and innovation in, in the right spaces to accelerate that shift towards baseload power, which is a cleaner energy. And, you know, there's there's hydro, um, pumped hydro is is, a, is obviously an area which is gaining a lot of, you know, interest as an alternate baseload power. Uh, and then there's also the, the big shift that a lot of people are pushing for here in Australia politically towards gas power as being the the transition fuel. Um, and, you know, it's, it's as a result, it's a heavily subsidised industry here in Australia. And, all those subsidies and and those kind of large economic levers that happen at the macro level all, do tend to ignore the day to day live reality of you know those experiencing energy poverty that um, you know have intermittent access on a grid network or are not on the grid network at all. And so then the question comes in to you know what you know again assuming that you know energy is the foundation for for most human rights. You know how do we ensure that there is access and just access to those communities and is it subsidizing those transition products that take people from a kerosene lantern to eventually being on hopefully a renewable energy grid so is are there state subsidies for for the types of products that pollinate distributes are there state subsidies for you new know, things like LPG which there are in in different kind of areas within India and so I guess it depends on on whether they're being used at the macro or micro level, but also um, what's the intent of those subsidies? Is it to, you know, rapidly, you know, scale the upliftment of people out of energy poverty, but therefore disregarding the type of fuels that are being used, or is it to to focus on a, a clean and renewable energy future? You know, and and look at those things like you know the. The Lights that's you know, poll- uh, that pollinate distributes are approximately you know, 45 US dollars. They're a very kind of low cost, simple tech stopgap between burning kerosene and other dirty fuels in the household, and you know, can get people towards the hopefully will we'll buy people over until they can get onto a grid, but you know, it's also. Very, you know, hypocritical of us in wealthier countries to kind of say, "Oh, you know, this this single solar light will, you know, that that's the energy that you can have until we get you renewable power." Because at the same time, why shouldn't those people experiencing energy poverty not have access to a computer or to a mobile phone charger, to a television, to a fridge, to a washing machine in their own home? And such is the the expectations of the aspirational classes, you know, within India and Nepal, is that. Um, you know, those products are markers of wealth, but those products can only, you know, be accessed with, you know, stable energy. And so, it's, again, returning to the the subsidies question, do we subsidise, you know, coal power and gas power and other fossil fuels to give that stable energy? Or do we, you know, rapidly invest in renewable technology and, and ensure that those low and middle income countries are getting the best technology and access to the best, you know, possible solutions that are available for creating a cleaner network and a cleaner grid?
0: That's fascinating because it is it is that juggling, balancing game of people need access to power, but we don't have enough of it from a sustainable green power to provide it while we do have it maybe if we were going to continue to use coal. But as we know from maybe current trends and some of the scientific reports, as well as us just being SDG-minded that we can't continue to live a life of just pumping gas and pumping oil and pumping coal, um, coal as our main source of energy. So where does that... You know, you kind of, I kind of sit here wondering, of like, well, who actually cares, and who's actually responsible for making a difference? Like, does our government's responding to some of these populations that don't have power and making a change, or, or is it more of companies like the like Pollinate that you speak of that are actually coming in and filling that gap? Uh, it, se- it seems to me I just keep hearing that energy poverty persists, and you know the only solutions more coal, and we have had a great conversation about the subsidies, but I still struggle with trying to understand with who actually cares, and I guess who's responsible for, for doing anything about it.
1: Yeah, who actually cares is a really interesting question, because I I think it's, you know, I consider myself a little radical on a few viewpoints, but I I certainly don't think that, that anyone in the energy sector doesn't care. I think there are just kind of ideological differences, and one of the main ideological differences that that I kind of really rally against is this need for for profit and this this idea that you should and, and must be making profits off of what I view to be you know a human right. And so obviously my viewpoint is that you know energy production and distribution should be a state owned asset what has been shown time and time again over the world is that we don't yet have the right formula for effective and efficient state owned energy assets a lot of nations have had you know public private ownership mixes um, fully public fully private you know all of them have their flaws there's no perfect solution but to say that anyone you know doesn't care i think is a little bit extreme but there are certainly people that care in different ways. And I think that, you know, one of the big arguments that is constantly brought out in Australia in support of the, the Adani coal mine and the a number of other coal mine applications that are currently being contested in Queensland state uh, land court, which is the, the Galilee Basin um, coal deposits, a lot of those companies are, are saying, like, you know, this coal... Is going to be you know the the coal that will, will lift people out of poverty and it, it's you know we had a former prime minister say that you know coal was good for humanity and i'm not going to say that coal hasn't been good for humanity it's given some of some of the the greatest advancements in, in human history but it's no longer i think the best option for humanity and and i think that's where the line is drawn that there are alternatives and um i think you know if you're caring for not just you know people's immediate needs but the needs of their grandchildren and great-grandchildren a rapid transition you know definitely needs to happen and you know the the current election or primaries leading into the election in the, in the United States will be a really interesting kind of moment for for the rest of the world because it could be a watershed moment in that you have a new administration that is focused on, you know, a green revolution and, and you know, the so-called Green New Deal. And the Green New Deal is now a policy which has been adopted and co-opted by, you know, the European Union, um, the UK opposition, the Labour Party was running on a similar platform. The opposition parties in Australia are also presenting it all through Kind of, uh South Asia and Latin America, there are different versions of this policy around, you know, green jobs, clean energy, and shifting the needle towards a, a more sustainable future. And and all of that is rooted in energy. You know, I think that it's going to be a really fascinating kind of decade as we as we try to hit the 2030 goals because as you said, there's so much that needs to, to shift and, and so much that needs to be done. And like, yeah, who cares? I, I think a lot of people care. They're just you know, maybe uh, caring about the same things with very different belief systems around it, and obviously mine is one about you know socialising those kinds of assets to ensure you know equitable access for, for for all populations, and you know ensuring a really just transition. And I think one thing I'll just quickly add on this: um, one thing that is often overlooked in this whole debate around energy and transition of the grid is is the jobs. And so there's, you know, thousands of workers or probably millions all across the world, but uh, in Australia there's about 50,000 workers in our coal industry. So what happens to them if we, we shut our coal industry overnight? You know, there needs to be you know, dignified opportunities for them to to find work and to continue to support their families and provide their families with that education and healthcare and access to those things. And so it's, you know, really, really easy to say black and white, you either care about renewable energy and people or you don't care about people because you are focused on coal. But just like everything, it's so multi-layered. And I certainly don't have the answer right now for for what's next. But I, I do definitely believe that yeah, you know, there's enough people that do care that will be able to shift the needle forward.
0: Yeah, well, luckily we have people like yourself that really do care and have a, a passion for trying to figure out this equitable power for all. And and your insights have been very valuable here today. And and uh, just before we close up, I wanted to kind of give you one last chance. If you if you were to tell someone in the SDG community or frankly just the general population about, um, give them uh, one last tidbit or topic about anything or to do with equitable power, what would be one last final thought or, or statement that you would tell them?
1: Oh, I guess, you know, history repeats itself. First is tragedy, second is farce. And that was something that Mark said. And, you know, I think that applying a really, really critical lens to the status quo of our global economies and our national economies is vital. And I think one of the, the great fallacies of our modern economic system and, and also of the, the SDGs to some extent, not, not all, but to some extent, is that there is this fascination and, and obsession with infinite growth and um, this idea that to, you know, this idea of wealth being a 3 to 4% increase in, in GDP per year. And I think, you know, George Manabot has, you know, you know I think he said based on those numbers, you know, it would be doubling you know, our economies every 25 years or, or so. So it's, I think we don't have an infinite earth, we don't have an infinite ability to tax, you know, our, our environment the way that we're currently doing it. And so I think, you know, when examining the SDGs and looking at how to, you know, meet the goals, tackle each of the indicators, we must be looking at things like, you know, circular economies, we must be looking at things that, you know, a net zero as being, like, the standard. It shouldn't be like we will reach net zero by this time. It should be like how do we make this net zero now? And if we can't do that, you know, net zero tomorrow, like, you know, what is the absolute fastest route? Yeah, I really do feel that the, the SDGs are achievable, but those of us that are that are looking at the SDGs as our kind of a, our benchmark for progress really should be applying a, you know, a, a semi-critical and, and a radical approach. Radical, um, lens to, to achieving those targets, because I think, you know, we're now, you know, 10 years left, there needs to be a massive, massive shift in our energy and enthusiasm to tackling this this problem of climate change. And and it's also about, you know, reaching across those people that you disagree with and, and try to bring them along on that journey, because I think that everyone can be reasoned with and, and you know, when included in the conversation, you'll find yourself...
0: With a new ally, hopefully. And couldn't agree more. And I, I'm always baffled that companies or different economies that have been growing eight, ten, twenty percent, and all of a sudden they they only grow five or six percent. And I'm thinking, well, that's still really good. <laughs> You're still growing yeah. a lot. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that statement's right there. We do not we do not have an infinite world of resources. And frankly, you look at the I always look back at the Malthusian theory uh, where. Does the world have a carrying capacity? Um, it's, it's scary to think, but I know he had said, I think maybe like 5 billion was what the world could handle uh, with his mm. calculation looking at population and resources that we had. And we're wow. now at 7 billion. And by 2050, you're supposed to have 9 billion. And we have mm. to find ways to decrease to our output while also increasing, decreasing our output. Yeah. Well, or increasing our inputs or maybe vice mm. versa. <laughs> but yeah. yeah Needing to okay, find yeah. ways to do more with less.
1: Yeah I think like you know it, it and that that kind of that kind of question around you know what is our, a sustainable population for the earth I mean I always forget these numbers but it, you know it's something like with the amount of food that is currently wasted in the world at the moment we could actually feed the entire population of the world with you know full nutritional inputs you know if there's it's it's that we have issues around consumption and consumption in wealthy countries and we have issues around distribution of of resources and wealth and you know a lot of those challenges have their root in the industrial revolution european colonialism and you know the the, the and, and i truly believe that colonialism and you know capitalism have marched in step you know across the world and are still you know having an effect on you know, our global debates around climate change today and the, the fact that, you know, the countries that are most at risk of the adverse effects of climate change are also the countries that historically have had the most, you know, the most turmoil under the foot of colonialism, imperialism and, and now kind of North American and European-led capitalism is is something that is often, you know, sidelined or not properly um, brought to the forefront of this conversation around the SDGs. And in the climate action SDG stream at Unleash, there are a number of Indigenous activists that were on that SDG track with us who you know were very eloquently putting forward that case of without centering, you know, Indigenous people, but also other minorities, in this conversation, it will be very difficult to to truly reach the SDGs whilst the forces of capital and the you know the historical shadow of of imperialism and colonialism still kind of hangs over those countries that are going to be most affected by climate change, but also have the longest distance to travel towards a true sustainability.
0: so Well said, then. Uh, well, I, I, it's it's so true. I mean, we need to be having those conversations with everyone from the from the bottom up, and um, it's it's not an easy easy uh, road forward, but it, it does require us to not only talk about these things, but act, but to actually take action. And I, it, it's great to see some of these different innovative business models that you're working on, and really excited to to see what happens next with your innovative energy efforts going on.
1: Cheers, and um, can I just do a quick plug for for Pollinate Group? Yeah, um, please. We are always open to having our students and professionals uh, come to India or Nepal and uh, and work with us on um, short-term and long-term projects, where you know social enterprise. That is, you know, looking to become sustainable through, you know, our recruitment and training of of women entrepreneurs who distribute clean energy products across India and Nepal. So we are always in need of of extra support on monitoring and evaluation, research, and, you know, product testing in the field. Um, So if you'd like to um, do any of that stuff with us in India or Nepal, um, do uh, hunt me down.
0: Yep. I'll make sure to have it on the show notes. Cool. Well, thanks, Luke, for your time today, and I look forward to talking again soon.
1: No worries. Thanks so much, Kevin. Of course. Cheers.
0: Well, I can stand on a soapbox and talk about SDG6, clean water and sanitation all day, it was great to have Luke on the podcast to talk about climate action and access to energy. And what I thought was really interesting was our discussion around coal. So many people today look at coal industry and point the finger and say, look at you causing all these problems. But having said that, coal has been responsible for advancing our societies quite a bit. Granted, if you think that advanced society is a good or bad thing, that's another discussion. But coal has done a lot of good for society and moving us forward. But now we look at this, well, it's no longer the best option. and We need to rapidly rethink what we're doing in terms of how we're getting our energy resources. And it's easy from afar to say, okay, we need to stop doing coal. We need to switch all the solar. That's great. And I agree with that. But you have to look at the 50,000 people in Australia that are currently getting their jobs and their, their money every day that they feed their family from with the coal industry so we need to strategically have a really close lens on how we're looking at making that drastic switch i also thought the comment around energy poverty was really interesting it's hard to really ever know what that's like until you actually maybe experience it i've never fully experienced in my life but i think it's important as he mentioned on the uh, with his uh, organization pollinate group where you can actually have the opportunity to go and touch and feel and experience what it's like to actually see what energy poverty looks like because then you can actually then have a little more context to figure out how you could possibly propose new solutions to solve it. We hope you enjoy listening and until next time, peace. Thanks for listening to the SDG Talks podcast. Make sure to check out all the show notes for relevant links from this show. Please share and follow SDG Talks on social media and stay tuned for updates from the Unleash and United Nations community.
1: The goal of SDG Talks is to bring you value. So if you want to learn about something specific or have suggestions, please let us know. We look forward to seeing you next time on SDG Talks.